if you're coming from North America, particularly Canada and the U.S., just realize that you don't have some of the same liberties that you have at home. Uh, many countries do not have a First Amendment and do not think that you're going to go to another country and use a First Amendment. You can look at stories from various regions where people have been jailed or sent home or punished in some way for speaking ill of the country's leadership. I just tell my clients, don't do it. And if you're going to do it, do it in your own house with people you trust and respect. Do not do it in public. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Flourish in the Foreign, the podcast that elevates and affirms the voices and the stories of Black women living and thriving abroad. Why? Because we do this. We, we do this well. For those of you that have been listening for a while, you know. You know what it is. And for those of you who've just joined us, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman living and thriving abroad in Barcelona, to be exact. So welcome to the show. I just want to thank you all for the support that you have shown to the show. I appreciate you. My Patreon subscribers, thank you to Isabella for becoming a Patreon subscriber. I appreciate you. Please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. I actually have something really cool that I'm going to share with you guys at the end of the show. If you haven't checked out the Flourish in the Foreign website, I urge you to do so because there is a cool interactive map on the website. The website is www.flourishintheforeign.com and you can actually click on all of the pins that are currently pinned on the map. It will connect you to the podcast that's associated with that city. Isn't that cool? Yes, it is. Go check that out. If you have a question about moving abroad, living abroad, thriving abroad, getting a career abroad, please send me those questions via DM on the Flourish in the Foreign Instagram, which is at Flourish Foreign. And I'm going to choose a question or two or three to answer on IG Live, maybe weekly, but we'll see how it goes. So on to our next story. This week, we have Carla who is sharing her story and... Honestly, Carla has lived in such interesting places. I'm going to let Carla tell you all about it. I, I live a life of uh, jaunting from one part of the world to the other. I consider myself a U.S. citizen with dual culture. And so although I was born in the U.S., I was raised in Jamaica as a child. I feel like both the U.S. and Jamaica are home, but I also feel like a citizen of the world, to use that terminology, because I've been living and traveling abroad since I was a young child. I tease my mom that she gave me a passport when I was nine months old, and so she's influenced my life in traveling and potentially living abroad. I asked Carla about how she made it abroad and where did she go? I had just taken a brand new job in North Carolina and 
I have been wanting to live and work abroad. Every opportunity I got and saw a position where I thought I was qualified for, I applied. When I sent in my application and then got this random phone call at three in the morning saying, hey, by the way, that application you sent in three months plus ago, we want to interview. I was like, oh, wow. And then when they call back and says, we want to hire you and have you come live here, I was like, okay. In my mind, there was no reason that I was not going to accept this job and go move abroad. My first position abroad was in the UAE. I work in higher education. I went abroad to work with a university there to help improve their student housing program. It's a big program by, I guess, U.S. standards. It was like 9,000 bed, 200 staff members plus overwhelming at first. <laughs> That's probably a good way to put it, to adapt to the institution, adapt to the culture. But in the end, um, I felt it was very rewarding. And I didn't know how rewarding it was until 2013, where I was back in the UAE at a conference and a young lady came up to me and asked me if I knew her. And I said, no, I'm sorry. Can you help me remember who you are. And she said to me that she was one of the first student leaders that I trained in the residential living program. And now she had graduated and she was now at a professional level in the residential living program. For me, those are the intangible stories that you don't always get to hear as a professional in higher ed. It put a smile on my face. I spent two years in the UAE, and then after that, I returned to the U.S. for roughly another two years at an unprecedented time. It was during the recession of 2008, and then I left the U.S. again in 2012. So after a professionally fulfilling time in the UAE, Carla was off again, and she was off to a location I don't think anyone is going to expect a location that she at first turned down. I went to Afghanistan to work at a university there. So I took a job in Nebraska um, in 2011, coming out of the recession. It was a great position. I'm not going to deny that. I, it was a high-level position running the entire student affairs department. But I had the itch. And anyone who's an expat or who's been abroad, you know that itch when you want to travel or you want to go abroad again. And that was me. And actually, in 2011, before I took the job in Nebraska, I was offered the position in Afghanistan. The day before I was required to give an acceptance, there was an incident. Basically, an incident is an attack. And it was on a hotel. And I, for lack of a better word freaked out and said, I can't go to a war zone. <laughs> and I decided not to accept the job. A year later, the same position came open and I was like, okay, this must be a sign I'm going. I reapplied, got accepted and July, 2012, I packed my bags and went to Afghanistan. This time, not being fearful. I would say I was in Afghanistan in a period of relative calm. 
I was able to enjoy things that I know colleagues and counterparts are not able to enjoy at this point in time. I was able to go to cafes and enjoy meals outside of my home, outside of the university. Occasionally went to the local market and shopped for groceries. I was at the university. I was doing student affairs work. I was being an academic advisor. I was teaching first year experience. I would write my lesson plans in cafes or gardens. I had opportunities to be out and about with the proper security, dressed appropriately, things of that nature. I think the things that I appreciated were... And it's little things, the fact that they had such amazing flowers, particularly roses that just grew everywhere and they were just beautiful. Some of the best pomegranates I've ever eaten, as well as watermelon. And it was a unique time and period there. I was there for roughly 14 months. I left out of the same reason why <laughs> I didn't go the first time was safety and security reasons. Things were heating up a bit. And the political situation as well as stability leading into a national election had been increasing. And so under the advice of wise people, they said, if you can leave and I heeded advice and left. Once I decided to leave Afghanistan, it was a packing up process. One of the things about being there I had a small snafu. At the time, our visas were for six months at a time, and my visa was in the process of being renewed. I had to wait an extra week while we went and got a special exit visa for me to leave the country. After her adventure in Afghanistan and needing to leave quite quickly and suddenly, she found herself off to the Caribbean, a familiar region for her. And took a job in the Caribbean, in the island of Dominica, not to be confused with the Dominican Republic. I headed on a plane, um, flying through the UAE, back home to the US to see my family, hung out, debrief, signed final contracts with an institution in Dominica, bought some supplies, then packed up and shipped off to the Caribbean, which in many ways for me, I was very excited about. It was in my mind, this was kind of a homecoming to the Caribbean, but just living on a different island and a different experience. Caribbean life, island life, there were things I was looking forward to. It was definitely a new experience in higher ed for me. I was going to work with professional students. This was a medical school. I had not worked with professional graduate level students in my career before, at least directly in this capacity. I, I truly enjoyed Dominica. It was definitely a slower pace of life, less worry than Afghanistan that I had just left. Lots of flexibility and freedoms, learn different things like to drive on the opposite side of the road that I'm accustomed to and driving on mountainside roads. Don't swerve the wrong way because then you're going down a cliff. I love the experience of being in a predominantly Black country and Caribbean life and the beach and the fresh fruits and seafood, things that 
reminded me of my childhood in many ways, getting up at four o'clock in the morning to go to the market. I remember as a child, my grandmother used to do that. And every once in a while, I got the special treat of accompanying her. Now I knew why and understood the process of why she got up at four o'clock in the morning to go to the market, because that's when you get the best produce. You go any later in the morning and it's slim pickings or the best part of the pickings are gone. After her stint in Dominica, she decided to take another job abroad, this time returning to Asia. I took a job at an institution in Singapore. With the exception of Dominica, all my jobs have been on continental Asia, just in different regions of Asia. And it was a return to the continent, but to Southeast Asia, which is very different. Singapore being very multinational, multilingual, a financial hub, an airport hub, and an institution that was growing, developing, providing the first opportunity for liberal arts education in the country because they don't have what would be considered like a U.S.-based liberal arts style education there. This was an opportunity to help develop and build the services within that program. It was another overwhelming experience. I am the suburbanite. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago area, and I liked the lush green, the quieter area. And that was one of the things I had to find for myself in Singapore when I you know, was doing the house hunting piece was to find a location that was not in the heart of the city and not very noisy. This is a city-state island nation that runs pretty much 24-7. I tell people it's like New York. It runs 24-7. That was really important to me. Be able to, what I call, go into the city for fun and entertainment, go to the major attractions, do all the things that I love, like theater and concerts and Singapore is a foodie environment. You can find whatever you want. It can be as inexpensive as you want it to be, like roughly $2 US to, you can hit double, triple, quadruple digits in your meals in the country. Just depends on where you want to go and how much you want to spend. I spent three and a half plus years there um, living and working. After Singapore, I took for lack of a better term, a sabbatical. <laughs> I spent roughly eight months being location independent and really going between Malaysia and Indonesia during that time. And part of that was I spent a bit of that unwinding, but doing a job search for my next opportunity in international higher ed as well as working on um, my business that I had just started, which is an expat coaching international consultant for higher ed business. And in January 2020, I moved to Bangladesh. I asked Carla what it was like living in Bangladesh. Bangladesh is an emerging country, otherwise other folks call it a developing country. It's a country that is really on the move. I see construction happening around of new buildings, new hotels. And we're talking five-star brand name hotels from the U.S. portfolio. And they're building a whole new metro system for the city 
as well as out into some of the smaller outlying areas, new road infrastructure going in. Healthcare system, there's private and public hospitals. Private hospitals are probably a little bit better for expats than the public ones. The infrastructure here struggles a bit, but what I've noticed thus far is the people here are friendly. They are resilient. This is a country that is prone to some floods or has been through some other things. The country's taking care of part of what's happening with the Rohingya crisis. The Rohingyas have crossed into Bangladesh and Bangladesh is working with the UN and various other organizations to serve the refugees in that situation. Due to the pandemic, I've been shelter in place since the middle of March. I had about four to five weeks of being out and about in the city, trying to learn where to grocery shop, where to buy small things for my apartment. Part of that was looking at apartments, finding housing. My university assisted with that process. Part of that was house hunting, furniture hunting, doing a lot of that. I did get the opportunity to go outside of Dhaka, the capital city where I am, on two separate occasions. One was to be a guest speaker at another university in a town about three and a half hours drive away. And then the other was to go on a retreat for our institution in another town. It's called Select is where we went for a retreat. Momin Singh, if I'm pronouncing that right, is where I went to speak at another institution. Both of those were road trips, got to see some of the countryside, got to see some of the life outside of the capital city. Dhaka is very dense. It's a densely populated city, one of the most densely populated cities in the world. Just lots of people. There's lots of noise pollution, traffic pollution. Hope to explore more once um, we're safe and healthy to move around post-pandemic. I asked Carla... What spurred her to create her own expat coaching and international higher ed consulting business? This birth of my company came because I wanted to see more people in general, but people of color, and I use that word um, very broadly, that includes Latinas, African-Americans, Africans. I wanted to see more people in higher ed abroad. I find that my circle in international higher education, I I don't find many people that look like me. I felt like, okay, I need to recruit some folks to be here with me. (laughs) Over the years, either myself or I've watched others or I've heard stories of people not always understanding and being prepared to move and live abroad. And the other part that I've heard is, You work in higher education abroad. You work with students, college students abroad. How did you do that? We didn't know we could do that. Most think that you have to speak the language. And they said, no, that's not always true. We do expat coaching and guidance. What I do is I spend time with aspiring expats in particular, helping them understand a couple pieces of the the puzzle. One is purpose, values, strengths, weaknesses of moving abroad? What are you bringing to the table, in other words? What is your purpose for doing this? Is it 
quality of life? Is it financial? Is it well-being? What are those things? Because those things need to match up to our next topic, which is geography. Where do you want to go? What are the things you need to consider geographically in the countries you're interested in, the region you're interested in? Are there places that you did not consider that could be a good option for you, but you didn't think it was an option for you? Then that leads into, let's talk about your application packet, your credentials. Let's make sure that resumes, cover letters, references, LinkedIn pages are up to date. They're in sync. They speak the language of your interests in moving abroad. It's not very centric to whatever country you're in. And then we talk about the job search process. We talk about the interview process. I often tell people that they're like, oh, I get to go visit the country when I interview. I said, most likely not. <laughs> Be prepared for video interviews. If you're going in at you know more significant level positions, yes, you may get that visit, but you may have to invest in your own visit. Do your research, connect with people who already live in there, ask questions. And it's okay to take jobs and not having stepped foot in the country. That's what I have done for every single job that I've taken around the world. I've never visited that country prior to going there. I had to ask Carla, what were her thoughts on headhunters, recruiting firms? Were they necessary to get a placement abroad? And I wanted to know how she had gotten her jobs abroad. I am familiar with some of the recruiting companies or search firms in higher education that do higher ed positions abroad. I have not gotten a job through any of them. I'm familiar with them. I've had my universities have used them for purely more senior level positions, presidents, vice presidents, provosts, those types of positions. But typically from your manager to your VP levels, those positions you can apply for on your own and get those positions through your standard application process. Do I think search firms are needed? Yes. They cut out the work for the institutions. They vet their clients to become great candidates for institutions, in my case, I'm specifically talking about higher ed. I do know that what we call in the U.S. the K through 12, or what is known abroad, primary, secondary education, there's a lot of headhunters or recruiters or agencies for international schools or teaching English abroad or things of that nature. Because I'm not in that particular sector of education, I'm not as familiar with those. I have colleagues or contacts that could better speak to this than I can. But for the higher ed piece, I can speak to the fact that you can go through a search firm if they are recruiting for a position that you're interested in. But there are various opportunities that are posted publicly that you follow the trail, the application process, the interview process and land a job. That's how I've landed all my jobs. I would say this, be very careful about agencies that are asking you to pay them up front. Research them. How reputable are they? What is their rate for placement? Things of that nature. Who's paying that money? Are you paying that money? Is the organization paying that money? 
Do your research. Because Carla is in higher education on the student affairs side, I was really interested in her thoughts on how she believed institutes of higher education could attract more diverse students to study abroad programs. I think the things that come to mind immediately is first, when you do your sessions on study abroad, reach out to the student organizations that are of diverse backgrounds on your campus. Invite them. Better yet, go to their meetings and do a presentation. When you're looking at the funding and the grants and the opportunities and you're setting up programs for funding, make sure that you have and you create funding for students who this is not going to be readily affordable. And how do you do that? Are there programs abroad that provide a quality experience educationally, but have a lower cost? Create some opportunities that are going to help your students of color, your Black students, your Latino students, to be able to have those experiences as well. The other thing I'm going to say is your Black students, Latino students, students of color are going to have a different experience abroad than your majority students. You need to be able to create study abroad orientations, programs that are going to give them the tools, the coping skills, the knowledge that is going to help them. They're going to experience things that your majority students are not going to experience, like someone wanting to touch their hair or their skin or, you know, using inappropriate language, have orientation that talks to them about that and talks them how to manage that. And if you don't know how to do that, you can reach out to me and we can help develop that. The other piece that you have to factor in is family. You as an institution, you as a study abroad office need to be able to convince the family to allow them to get on a plane and that their child, children, son, daughter will be safe. That is a big concern, and I've heard, especially if a family's never traveled and you're saying you're going to send my child to what country in what continent that I've never heard of, you got to do some education to parents as well. you got to get them on board, and then that will help get the student on board. From Afghanistan to Bangladesh, I was wondering how Carla addresses her safety in each country that she's lived. As I mentioned before, safety is a, is a concern for me, which is why I didn't go to Afghanistan in the first place and essentially lived in a war zone. I talk about looking at some of the statistics, looking at what is the crime rate and not, not just look at what may be the big crimes, look at the small crimes because a lot of places have smaller crimes. Singapore is safe, that doesn't mean Singapore doesn't have any crime. The level of crime, it's different. There's a little bit of everything in Singapore, but the magnitude of it is what you pay attention to as well. And that is part of the difference. Now, ironically enough, although Afghanistan was a war zone, from a crime perspective, it was not a high crime place. I mean, there was a lot of other crimes that happened, things that many of us consider against human rights and things of that nature. You look at human rights statuses, you look at what some organizations are saying about this particular country and evaluate those things. 
look at them in the context of your own values. Can you go to a country where X is happening or Y is happening? Will that trigger value challenges for you? Or is that what you want? Do you want to go to a country where you can help push that country to a different level? Again, within context, because you have to take into consideration what freedoms and liberties you may have as a foreigner in that country and which ones you don't. I asked Carla, how had the local politics of the countries that she's lived affected her day-to-day life as an expat? I think the place where I found that the most was Afghanistan because I left because of politics, because of an upcoming election. I would have liked to stay. I enjoyed my job there and working with the students there. I think in other places, what I have been consciously aware of is my liberties and what the laws of the country are that I need to abide by. And I advise my clients the same way, especially if you're coming from North America, particularly Canada and the U.S., just realize that you don't have some of the same liberties that you have at home. Um, Many countries do not have a first amendment and do not think that you're going to go to another country and use a first amendment. You can look at stories from various regions where people have been jailed or sent home or punished in some way for speaking ill of the country's leadership. I just tell my clients, don't do it. And if you're going to do it, do it in your own house with people you trust and respect. Do not do it in public. I don't feel like I have been negatively impacted in any of the places that I have been because I'm very conscientious of where I'm going and what uh, I need to pay attention to. Understanding the culture, just like how you're going to learn your job whether that job may be that you're an entrepreneur in a specific country or you are an employee in a specific country, you have to learn the culture of that country and what is acceptable and what's not and connections with local acquaintances, friends, colleagues will help you develop some of that, that knowledge. I was also curious to see if the politics of the United States, her home country, had any kind of effect while she was living and working abroad? What my home country does, it impacts the world. I mean, let's just be frank. What is said, what is done has a ripple effect. And you can see that. I do say that people tend to be very friendly and warm to U.S. citizens in general. But I have noticed a slowing down of that. It doesn't stop me from traveling or being somewhere, but I have taken notice. People tend to question me more in the past two to three years about why is this happening in your country? Why is the leadership of your country saying certain things? And I I don't have answers. Sometimes I say, actually, I don't know. You and I are both at a loss. But I think it comes and goes, depends on who the leadership of our country is and what is the diplomatic and foreign relations policy that we put out. 
Carla has extensive experience working around the world and also having her own business. I was wondering how did she manage her tax obligations while being abroad? For me, as a U.S. citizen, I am required by U.S. law to file my taxes every year. Now, whether or not I pay taxes, that depends on the particular tax laws for that particular year. I have a tax accountant who I send her all the data every year, and she figures it all out for me, asks me additional questions, and makes sure it's filed properly. She now does that not just for me personally, but for the business. The business is based in the United States, but we still have other implications when we work with clients from different locations that may be paid in different currencies. From the perspective of investment and retirement, I hang on to my 401ks or my IRAs and make sure I'm saving in that capacity. I always have what I call a cash rainy day account that I can tap into and use for emergencies, including I know there are people who are against credit cards. But I will tell you, you need to have an emergency credit card when you are abroad because sometimes your cash will not get you anywhere. Because Carla is a veteran expat and she has an expat coaching business, I was wondering if she could break down the components of an expat package. Look at more than just salary. I think people tend to just say the salary, the salary, the salary. No. Look at the benefits. What is the insurance? Is there a housing allowance? Is there a car allowance? Are there other allowances that they provide you that adds up to the overall package that is very sustainable for you or your family versus looking at just the cash amount? Especially when you're working in for example, emerging countries, your cash salaries are not going to be the digits you may want them to be. But are there other things that compensate, such as a low cost of living, such as they provide you housing, such as they are paying for schooling for your children? What are the other things that you have to look at to figure out, is this workable for me? It's, it's not a one size fits all when it comes to offers and packages. Whether you are solo, whether you're a family, what's the cost of living in the country? For example, Singapore, the cost of living, it's relatively high for expats. The most expensive commodity is housing that you're going to spend money on. Does your package include housing? Does it not? If it doesn't, does your salary is equivalent enough that you can find an an appropriate housing accommodations for your needs, and that means solo or family. Sometimes you have to make sacrifices in order to move to the country you want. Not only has Carla lived around the world, but she's also traveled around the world extensively. And I wanted to know, what was her experience being a Black woman abroad? I don't think I've ever been anywhere that I would say hyper-aware. I think the Middle East... I had experiences that were relatively positive. And I think part of that has to do with passport privilege. The first impression is that I'm not an American, but when I open my mouth and speak or when I tell them where I'm from, 
then the privilege kicks in on the other end, good, bad, or indifferent. But overall, I, I found that the UAE was relatively positive. I have one negative scenario that really has stuck in my mind, and it tends to be the story that I tell about being in a particular mall and shopping with a colleague. We went to have lunch and this colleague and I usually go to Abu Dhabi or Dubai every weekend. And on this particular occasion, we went to one of the restaurants in this particular mall. And the waiter slash hostess, because the restaurant, the way it was, is that the person who's your hostess is also your waiter, looked at my friend and said, oh, would you like your maid to sit in the maid's area? And she looked, she laughed. I looked, I laughed. And we're like, she's not my maid is what she said. Part of that came out of the fact that we were shopping. I was the one with all the shopping bags and she had none. She was a Caucasian woman. I was a black woman. I was carrying the bags. The assumption was that I was the maid. We had a moment and we actually sat in the restaurant and ate and then, and then this person served. And at the end of the meal, I took the bill and I handed the person a platinum card from a specific bank in the country to pay the bill as a moment of, I'm not the maid. Maids don't come with these cards. I think Dominica was one of the places where being a Black woman mattered not. I think the U.S. piece didn't play much either. I was working for a U.S. institution in the country, and there were quite a few of us at the institution. And I kind of fit in, went to the beach on Sundays like everyone else did. Singapore was a bit different. I think it's the place where I felt I spent a lot of time educating people. People didn't necessarily think, even after I opened and spoke and said where I was from, there was some bit of denial or hesitation. There's been a few occasions where I've had local taxi drivers start these conversations and they wouldn't believe that I'm from the United States and started to like, where in Africa are you from? And I would say I'm not. And sometimes I would just to throw a twist in there, I would say I'm from Jamaica. And then people would be like, where is Jamaica? I had fun having a geography lesson with people. I think microaggression is what I, I got in Singapore. And some of it wasn't about race. Some of it was about body image. I'm a curvy woman. And so I've had comments <laughs> from the lady that I sat next to on a bus that told me, you're a pretty brown girl, please use an umbrella so you don't get any darker. To someone saying, you should walk a little bit more, it would help your figure. <laughs> There's this sense of bluntness that happened and I was like, okay, okay, thank you for that. Or the taxi driver who asked me, did I eat fried foods all the time for dinner? And I said, no, I'm actually going home to cook and I'm going home to make some salmon and some vegetables. And he looked a little puzzled that 
I'm naming healthy foods and I look the way I look. I've taken it in stride. I, I think I've learned to do what some people would not do. I spend time engaging in the conversation and educating. Some people will not do that. Some people will ignore. I do ignore sometimes. Some people would take a more aggressive approach. I, I tend not to. If I don't want to have the conversation, I just ignore them. I just say, look, I, I, I don't want to talk today and leave it at that. I was also curious to know what was dating like from region to region and what her experience had been. My philosophy on dating is I date who likes me. And I know that is very broad. That means I date outside my race. If folks really want to know the the blatant truth. (laughs) Um, I date who likes me. And I look at it as a date. These are opportunities to meet potential suitors. But I have not made that a huge focus. Now, I will say that in the past almost eight years that I have been living out consecutively, I did get married and divorced while I've been abroad. And no, I did not marry a U.S. citizen. I did marry someone off my race and it didn't work for a variety of reasons. But that has not discouraged me from continuing to date. I took some time to heal from my divorce and I am now back at the place where I'm open and willing to date and willing to potentially look at um, long-term relationship that may lead to another marriage. I go out and enjoy myself. I do a lot of things solo, whether that's going to the movies, five-star restaurants, traveling. I may have a date while I'm on a vacation in the country and it may not work. And I was like, okay, great. It was lovely meeting you and having dinner with you. I asked Carla if she could see herself settling down in a particular country in the foreseeable future. And if so, where? Settling down. Oh my gosh. I don't think I've found the spot yet. Now, granted, I do particularly like Bali, Indonesia and fund of the island and could see myself having a little traditional Balinese style house for retirement there. But I don't know if I'm a settled downer. And settling down for me means two, three years in one spot and moving on. I think that's the other thing. I need a potential partner who understands that, who's willing to do that, who's already doing that. And this becomes our routine that I will look at that partner and say, you ready to move? And he will say, sure, I'm ready to move. (laughs) Let's do this. I, I think eventually I will probably put down roots in some place, but right now I'm enjoying the journey. Again, because Carla is in international higher ed student affairs, I was wondering if she had any advice for any college students who were thinking about moving and living abroad right now. I would say before you even graduate, if you have the opportunity, the resources, study abroad. Take the opportunity to explore somewhere and study abroad. I mean, and that can be include things like exchange program. It could be a semester at sea. It could be a variety of things. But if you have that, take the shot and do it. I think it helps you prepare for if you want to move abroad. 
afterwards. The other thing, if you have the opportunity, take a gap year before you go into full-time work or even before you start university and do some traveling. Again, this is resource permitted. And some of that resource can come from finding programs like the one in Australia that it's a holiday abroad program. You can get a visa to go work during your holiday there. But I would say for young women who are graduating, you have that degree, whether it's a bachelor's, master's, or even a PhD, whether you're fresh out of college or you've been working for a little while and you want to take the leap, prepare. Make sure that you are mentally ready. You have a mindset to live abroad. Find an expat coach who can help you because that's what we do. We help you get prepared. There are things that we can share with you that you may not think of, whether it be on the job search end, whether it be on the coping skills or transition end, whether it be about immigration and visa end. Um, We know things because we've either lived in the country, we know folks in the country, we have resources that we can tap into. Find folks who are abroad to help you make your journey. The phrase is, I'm supposed to make it easier for the folks who come behind me. Part of that is, let me coach you. Part of that is, let me get you connected with someone who can help you. And that includes making sure your resume looks right. It speaks international, (laughs) things like that. If you're starting a business, making sure you understand the laws, the business licenses of where you want to be and how that works. I'm talking to a good friend at the moment who has struggled for six months trying to get a bank account set up for her business in a particular country. You run into those kinds of roadblocks. And if you are wanting to do some of those things, let's find the right folks to help you make sure that you're doing this right. What we want you to do is to make the leap and do well. We want you to not just survive. We want you to thrive. And in order to thrive, you have to do it right. It doesn't mean you're not going to have bumps in the road. You're not going to have challenges. You're not going to be frustrated but it means that you're mentally prepared to outlast that challenge, that obstacle, because you've spent some time doing preparation. I asked Carla, what was her advice for women who are looking for their next location abroad? Perhaps they are already abroad, but not having the best time. To women who are struggling in a particular location, spend the time research where do you want to go where it's going to be the best fit for you next prepare for that location and then make the leap don't just jump from your current frustrating situation to another situation that you haven't done the homework you haven't done the research you don't know the knowledge you've not made the connections you're not networking there yet and there's plenty of tools opportunities, um, ways to network with people in potential locations that you're going to and use those, reach out to people. Some people will brush you off, but some people will answer your questions and, and be willing to get you on your way to understanding what it's like to live in that country. I asked Carla, what was her personal definition of wellness and how had her adventures in working and living abroad 
influenced that definition? Wellness is having the ability to live an improved quality of life. I think I lived a reasonable quality of life in the United States. I think my quality of life has improved since I've moved abroad, regardless of where I've lived. That has come in different ways. Spiritually, there are places where I've been able to attend worship in public spaces like a church, and there are places where I've not been able to. So it becomes a more personal um, one-on-one connection with my faith and, and my beliefs. Professionally, I think I have taken a vast approach to my jobs. I have taken promotions. I have taken step downs in titles that have given me experiences in ways that I didn't plan initially. For example, Afghanistan was one of those where although I took a title that is, if you look at my my resume, you're like, she went from what to what? But... In taking that position, I was able to teach. I taught first-year experience. I academic advise. I did all these things that I typically don't get as a traditional student affairs professional. I've been able to grow professionally. I've been able to speak um, at conferences about my experiences abroad, inspire, encourage other people to do it. I've been able to write and advise folks professionally. These are all things I feel that are wellness things for me because there are things that I'm getting to do that I don't think that I would have had the time or energy to do if I was stateside and feeling that I was in a more pressured situation. I do take care of myself, like going to the spa and dining out. I am one for a vacation. Vacation days do not get wasted on me. I use them. I think one of the things I have done for myself from a home perspective is I have taken the opportunity to contribute to the economy by hiring a housekeeper that gives me more time and flexibility. That means I'm paying someone, I'm contributing to the well-being of someone else's family by having a housekeeper and making sure that that person is treated with dignity, respect, and showing some appreciation and gratitude for the work that they're doing in my home. I tell people all the time, I try to live my life with as little regret as possible. A life well lived is a life with as little regret as possible. And every once in a while, I try to count up the number of regrets that I've had, things that I have not done. And then I look at, okay, are there any of them that I can fix? And then if I can't, I put it back in the box and say, okay, you are a regret. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Carla. What a great story. What great advice as well. Thank you. If you want to keep up with Carla, please follow her via her social media. You can find me at my personal Instagram, which is travelgal45. You can find my company, Roseapple Global, on Instagram at roseapple.global, at Twitter, at Roseapple Global. Our website is roseappleglobal.com. You can find me on LinkedIn by my name, Carla Fraser. I, I do write a blog that talks about my experiences. And so it's a little bit of fun about being abroad, like my story about loving spas and going to spas around the world. 
but I do some advice pieces on how to prepare for emergencies abroad or why does living abroad change you. I've just started the founder series. I'm actually telling stories in a reflective way of the countries I've lived in. The UAE and Singapore are posted out there if you want to know. All right. That was such a great episode. Thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. If you love the show as much as I love producing it for you, please consider supporting the podcast. Flourish in the Foreign is written, hosted, and lovingly edited by me, Christine. And this process is a labor of love, but labor nonetheless. And because podcasting is not free, it takes time, money, and resources to produce this wonderful show for you each week. There are two ways for you to support the show. One is monetary, the other is non-monetary, and both are equally appreciated. The monetary way is through the site Patreon. You can become a Patreon member of the podcast by going to the Patreon website, which is www.patreon.com slash Flourish Foreign, and this allows you to contribute to the show monthly. It works like this. Patreon will automatically take out whatever you choose to donate at the first of the month, ranging from one euro to as many euros as you like. And based on the level of support is the level of content you can receive from the podcast. So I've decided to throw in a little prize, which is once Flourish in the Foreign has hit 10 Patreon subscribers... I'm going to drop a second episode that week. So you'll always get your episode on Monday. But once we hit 10 Patreon subscribers, I'm going to bless y'all with another episode. I have a lot of recorded interviews from amazing women who live all over the world. They have incredible stories and I really cannot wait to share them with you. But like I told you, it's a labor of love. Labor nonetheless. Once we get to 10 Patreon subscribers, I'm going to drop a second episode, a full episode. I'm not going to shortchange y'all. Two episodes in a week. Y'all think about that. And if you choose to support the podcast through Patreon, I will, of course, shout you out on the podcast. Also, if you're saying, hey, Christine, I want to contribute monetarily, but maybe I don't want to be in a super committed kind of relationship with you just yet. That's okay. Flourish the Foreign now has Cash App. So you can Cash App the podcast to show your appreciation and your support. Flourish in the Foreign Cash App is Flourish Foreign. There you go. That's it. It's easy. Flourish Foreign. That's Cash App. If you want to do kind of like a one-time kind of thing, no worries. It's all appreciated. Now, on to the non-monetary ways to support this podcast, which is, of course, equally as important. Please shout out the podcast on social media. Tag the podcast across Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Flourish Foreign. Tell people why you like the podcast when you recommend it. Tell your favorite blogs, other podcasts, magazines, newspapers that you read. Tell them about the podcast. Tell them that they should check it out. Tell them that they should write about it too. Also, please review the show. Take the time right now to go ahead and give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcast. And please leave a review. Leaving a review takes only about 15 seconds. 
It really means a lot. And also it's the way that people can find the podcast and organic search. So please take the time to review the show five stars and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And also please leave a review on whatever listening platform you're using. That is it for today. Thank you so much for rocking with the podcast, supporting the podcast. I really appreciate it. And of course, thank you again to Zachary Higgs, who produced the music of this podcast. Zach produces music for musicians, content creators, video games. He can do it all. So if you're looking for some original music for your next project, please check him out. I'll put all of his information in the show notes. Until next time, be well, take care of yourself. For real, please take care of yourself. All right. See you next week. Bye. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. It's very dark here. The shortest day of the year is four hours long, four hours of sunlight, which if you're not used to that, and I don't know if really people are used to it as much as they just know it's coming and they try to prepare themselves mentally. But it is a fascinating thing to have to endure. And I've had to develop a routine to deal with it because if you allow yourself to sit and think about how dark it is, it starts to feel like it's just like closing in on you.